I just, I, I exploded, I burst. You know, it was this kind of feeling of like a dam breaking. The geneticist told us what it was and gave us a brief description of what it was, but all I really heard was progressive. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. Oh, a special needs child, it's a blessing, it's a blessing. And I just wanted to punch them in the face every time they said that at the time. We get through it because we see that she just wakes up every day with a smile on her face and she's ready to go. I haven't been a very compassionate person most of my life. But the moment we got the diagnosis with Tiana, the moment I, I kind of processed it, it was like this immediate uh, change of heart. Victor and Jeanette Vega are parents to two daughters, Aaliyah, nine, and Tiana, seven. When Tiana was two and a half years old, she was diagnosed with Rett syndrome, a progressive neurological disorder. Thank you so much for being willing to do this interview. Yeah, yeah no, no problem. problem. So your daughter, Tiana, is seven years old, and she has Rett syndrome. What does a diagnosis of Rett syndrome mean for her? Okay, I'm taking that question. Um, so... For Tiana, I mean, that means it's a progressive disorder. And for her right now, um, I mean, she can't use her hands. Uh, she can't talk. And she does walk. About maybe 50% of uh, people with Rett syndrome can or cannot walk. So that's a, uh, you know, blessing for her. And um, that also means that, you know, with her not being able to talk and use her hands, we use an eye gaze device. Uh, mm -hmm to talk. Uh, it scans her eyes. It's kind of infrared sensor that uh, allows her to pick symbols and, you know, words on a, on a screen. And we're able to communicate with, uh, with her that way. Um, and that's also uh, goes into her schooling. Um, but, you know, it's still, uh, still hard. You know, for her, that means uh, uh, that uh, at times, you know, she can't play with, play with kids uh, the way other kids uh, do. You know, even though she walks around, she can't run around with kids. Uh, you know, when we go to the pool, someone has to be with her all the time um, or even you know, outside of the house, uh, we have to hold her hand to walk or, or sometimes even her, her back um, while, while other kids are out there running. She doesn't seem to complain, but it does uh, sure tug at our hearts every time we see that. Um, and also, you know, sleeping wise, it's, it's always a worry because, uh, you know, sometimes she just rolls over into the pillow a certain way or her breathing is not right. Um, you know, she, she breaths holds and uh, sometimes chokes on things. She also currently uses a G-tube. And so she's almost 100% almost fed through, through that G-tube. And mm -hmm. uh, how we uh, give her nutrition, um, which uh, took us a little while to, to even get to that point. We didn't want to accept it that she needed it. But now looking at pictures uh, before then, uh, yeah, she was getting pretty skinny and, and now she's able to have a, you know, healthier, stronger body, which has allowed her to not get uh, sick as much. So it's, it's a constant um, battle every year. There's a whole list of things that can come with Rett syndrome. And the thing is, you don't know if and when they will happen. 
Yeah. Jeanette, is there anything that you would add to that? Uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, that he mentioned the breathing issue. She doesn't, she, she really struggles with breathing. It's, it's a, this is a neurological disorder. So she doesn't have control over how she breathes, how she, how her hands and arms move. So she's got, uh, she's got, um, uh, like stereotypical hand movements that she just cannot control. Her body is in constant state of either hyperventilation or breath holding, mm-hmm. um, which is really uncomfortable. Uh, she's learned to deal with it. It is what it is, and she doesn't complain about it. Um, she has she swallows air a lot. Uh, just things that she cannot control. It's just a neurological aspect of of this disorder, um, right. and then and then the sleeping problems as well. And thankfully, we have been free of seizures. Uh, we are. I shouldn't say we are, we have been free of seizures. We think that she might've had her first seizure during school last year. Um, so we're keeping an eye on it with a neurologist. Um, but seizures do come with this disorder as well. So, uh, that's something that we have to look into and keep an eye on. Um, for now she's unmedicated and she's doing fine. We've never, haven't seen another episode since Mm -hmm. Uh, it's been about six months and, um, and we check her heart every year as well. She, um, girls with girls and boys with Rett syndrome could have um, an issue with their heart called long QT syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have to keep an eye on that every year as well. Um, but but given all that, I would say that right now, um, you know, her life is 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 difficult for someone on the outside looking at it. It's it's very difficult and hard. Um, but for her. <laughs> She smiles and she wakes up every morning happy and ready to face the day. And um, it's very inspiring. Yeah, yeah. And how much, you were mentioning that eye gaze device, Victor. How much can she communicate with you with her eyes? What sorts of things does she communicate? Uh, You know, there's some of the basic things. She tells us how she's either feeling, uh, if things hurt. Um, She also is able to, you know, pinpoint like what hurts. So we know, you know, there's, there's a whole list of categories. Um, it's been a learning curve. She's been using it now for, I guess, yeah, four years, four years plus. And uh, we work uh, with her school team and also with other organizations uh, like Rett University, which um, is kind of specialized in uh, children with complex needs, uh, and especially those that need some type of uh, assistive technology or some other sort of, uh, you know, uh, assistive to communication, whether it's flip books or or, uh, you know, touchscreen things or, or certain uh, matrix type uh, symbols. And, but for her daily use, uh, you know, we always try to have it in the house uh, at school. It's all part of her IEP to go in and uh, have it in the school setting, having uh, a one-on-one communication partner with her. She lets us know if she's got to go to the bathroom uh, and, and things like that. Kind of some basic neat things for sure. Uh, but then she also uh, has learned to navigate it very well, uh, which is the you know the whole point of it, and is able to you know tell her sister like, hey, that's too loud, or um, I don't like this show, or change it, you know. And if her sister doesn't respond, she starts screaming at her too. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she's able to communicate very purposeful, you know, uh, communications, which is what you know has allowed us to realize that you know intellectually she's there. And it's, it's a different learning. Like I said, there's a learning curve, but she's able to learn and we're, we're teaching her how to read and write uh, specifically. So, you know, the whole goal is that when she's older, she's able to communicate with us, with her caregivers, uh, be able to, to tell us, you know, if 
there's some caregiver and something's not going on right, you know, be able to communicate that uh, to ensure that, you know, she doesn't get taken advantage of in, in the future. Um, mm-hmm. And also uh, to be able to make sure that she has a voice. You know, we, we hope that um, one day all this uh, will be cured. There will be a cure for Rett syndrome. And we want to make sure that if that time comes in her lifetime, that, you know, she's able to communicate even afterwards, you know, to be literate and be able to tell her story. Yeah. And so her older sister, Aaliyah, is nine. Do you have the impression that mentally, cognitively, intellectually, she's similar to how Aaliyah was when she was seven or farther behind? Or is it really hard to say because her development and the way she can communicate is so different? I would say that um, she is spot on. Um, and it's it's crazy because earlier and prior to having the speech device uh, and really understanding about how folks with Rett syndrome communicate, um, I've learned a lot and been able to learn a lot about her and how she's communicating. And that's one thing that I've been very happy to notice is um, her changes in her likes and things that she wants to see or do and talk about um, are pretty spot on um, developmentally. So yeah, it's been, it's been amazing that that speech device. I mean, she's, she's been able to tell us things and I know my husband said she's pretty good at it. And what I say is that she's good on it. She's good at it when she's not being asked to use it. Um, <laughs> and that, and that falls because she's got uh, something called apraxia and you, you start talking to these girls and boys and, and, and it causes a lot of, causes a lot of delays and difficulties in being able to respond um, when they're put on the spot. But the minute you walk away from her and she goes near her device, she will let me know that she hurt her finger and, uh, or she hurts or she doesn't feel well. And it's not as fluent as we'd like it to be at the moment, but for her to at least say bad or good, or use a, a button that says for her, I need to go to the bathroom. Uh, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Uh, those are the basic things that she can communicate right now. And I'm, so grateful for that so right and Jeanette mentions one thing as far as the apraxia I would say that that's um that's now the learning curve we have to constantly uh, battle with with other people uh whether it's just other kids her school team every time it changes you know every time there's a new year um or just any casual conversations with anybody you know I, as, as humans we're all used to uh talking in a quick response back right there's not a lot of delay going on when uh when you're talking to a person um and and with her there's a bit of that you know delay due to the apraxia which means you know she she's there she knows exactly what she wants to tell you but her body may cause her head to uh go to the right right and you got to give her a couple seconds to kind of read and select what she's saying um and if you if you understand that then she's able to respond and you're able to communicate with her um, but that's, you know, a thing we always try to kind of educate people on, uh, because it, you know, immediately people want to say, oh, she's got the device. Hey, tell me this, tell me something. And then there's, uh, you know, question fire one after the other. And she's still thinking about, you know, the question you just asked her because her body's trying to focus in and answer that question and you're already on to the next question. Um, so that's just, you know, something we try to you know educate people that are, that are interfacing with her that, Hey, if you give her a second, um, you'll, you'll be able to communicate uh, with her. And for me, uh, that's actually been a good uh, learning experience for me, just uh, life in general. Uh, my wife will tell you, I, I talk a million miles a minute and uh, <laughs> I'll talk on top of people. 
I'll, uh, you know, I'll finish your sentence. I'll answer your question before you even, you know, finish your question because I already know what you're asking. Um, and, and that's been me. But with having to work with Tiana and her eye gaze device and her apraxia and all this red syndrome stuff, I've had to learn to slow down. Um, and I'm not there completely. I'm sure coworkers of mine will tell you, no, you still step over us. Uh, <laughs> but, but I, I've, I'm more conscious about it. You know, I'm, I'm able to be in a conversation now and constantly tell myself, let them finish, let them finish, let them finish. <laughs> and that's right. all because I've been, you know, uh, communicating with Tiana and, and understanding that, uh, you know, sometimes someone needs a couple seconds to get their thoughts together. Right. How did how did Tiana receive this diagnosis? I think um, she was two and a half when she was diagnosed. Is that right? That's correct. Um, so she got her genetic diagnosis through a whole genome sequencing, which is part of the uh, CSER uh, uh, project, which is the Clinical Sequencing Evidence Generating Research. It was a national uh, study going on at the time, and we were specifically part of the South Seek. Uh, chapter, which is under Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology here in Huntsville, Alabama. And how we got there was that, you know, we were noticing developmental delays and let you kind of talk a little bit more on that part. But once we did, we thought she may be having a seizure potentially. Uh, she was at, by that time, uh, going to a lot of different therapies, occupational speech, uh, physical therapy, you know, we didn't know what she had. Uh, she wasn't walking. Uh, she didn't take her first steps until about, you know, just over her two-year uh, birthday. And as we were taking her to the neurologist uh, and here in Huntsville, at an office from Children's of Alabama, they, you know, we, we did EEGs. Uh, we, they thought they had, she had seizures, so they put her on medication, uh, which was not good. She was on Keppra and just turned her into an evil child uh, with mm -hmm. all the, she had all the side effects of the medicine and, and none of the good. Um, none of the benefits. Yeah. Yeah. So as we went through that, then, you know, they suggest, they, oh, they did a blood test too, because they, they started thinking, hey, maybe there's some chromosome thing or maybe there's some genetic thing. So we got a blood test uh, done, uh, which was sort of inconclusive other than they saw something um, you know, there may be something going on in this chromosome. And as at the time, the CSER uh, project was, the study was in regards to developmental delay in children. Uh, so she qualified based on what was going on. So we got into that study. Uh, like I said, there was a whole genome uh, sequencing uh, done. At the time, it took about six months to get. And, you know, in the meantime, we're also still trying to figure out, trying to maybe cope with it. We thought that maybe she just had a severe form of autism. So we started talking to families that had autism and stuff just to kind of emotionally prepare for all that. Um, and then like I said, six months later, uh, we got the results, the actual results from the ge um, geneticist. And we were there with a genetic counselor when they told us that. Yeah. Did your, was it a neurologist you saw who ordered genetic testing for her, or got her involved in the study, or did they refer you to genetics and you got involved in the study from there? Or at what point did you actually connect with um, a geneticist and a genetic counselor? Um, so, so yeah, like Victor said, we had started to suspect um, seizures with Tiana and it was mostly when she was waking up from sleep that she had some funny things going on. And so 
uh, we went to the neurologist who, uh, from, from the get-go, from first eyesight on Tiana and seeing the low muscle tone that she had in many different things, she knew right away that it was more than just seizures. Um, so she, uh, she went ahead and got the uh, blood test done, the, the chromosomal array, um, and we did the sleep study and the EEG and everything. Um, and then from there, uh, once we got the results from the chromosomal array and saw that there was something going on with chromosome number five, uh, it was when she decided to uh, enter us into that study, uh, the CSER study that Victor's talking about with Hudson Alpha. And that's where they took um, my blood and Victor's blood and Tiana's blood and, and um, took six months, which I think, I believe now they're up to doing it in about two months. But at the time, it took them six months to, uh, to map the whole genome. So, yeah, uh, yeah, that's a that's such a long time to be waiting <laughs> for yes. for a potential answer. Um, and then who who gave you those results? Did you meet with a geneticist and genetic counselor in person, or was it through your neurologist again, or a team of people? It was uh, with the geneticist there at the neurologist's office. And uh, Victor, I'm drawing blank on his name. Do you remember his name? <laughs> uh, I know they were. It was a. Uh... Geneticists from uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham. Uh, so they they kind of there's a great community here with that between the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotech that I mentioned, um, the neurologist, which is part of the Children's of Alabama, which is a children's hospital down in Birmingham, and also the University of Alabama, Birmingham. So there's kind of a there was a whole team that that's part of the that Caesar uh, you know study that I mentioned. And the geneticist was from Birmingham. Uh, he came up. He apparently he comes up to uh, Huntsville uh, to give you know his diagnosis. And we were also he was also paired up with a genetic counselor from Hudson Alpha, uh, which was just I mean looking hindsight, it it was it's been a great experience. Um, yeah, you you get the news, and it, it wasn't a great day that day when we got the the news. Uh, there was a lot of crying, uh, as we call it, ugly crying, uh, and once you get a diagnosis like this, I don't think you, you cry pretty anymore, but everything's kind of ugly, right? Uh, but uh, we had a genetic counselor with us. Uh, I know her name is uh, Whitley Kelly, and she's been great. You know, um, the geneticist told us uh, that, hey, it's a progressive disorder, this town, it's Rett syndrome, and let us ask questions. And, and Jeanette, you, you can talk a little bit about you know, that, because I know you asked some of the first questions. I was still a little bit in shock as to what was going on. Yeah. Uh, so the day of the, the diagnosis, again, we thought we were going in to get an, an autism diagnosis, um, not knowing anything about Rett syndrome. And, um, you know, so the, the, the geneticist told us what it was and gave us a brief description of what it was. But all I really heard was progressive. Um, and I think the, I think one good thing about this experience is that he didn't go into deal detail and just allowed me to an, ask questions. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know that's very different from, from what other people's, uh, experiences have been. Um, but you know, I, I do remember the first thing that I asked was, um, will she be able to talk? Um, and I didn't get a good answer. Uh -huh. um, there are not very many girls or boys with Rett syndrome who can speak. There are some, um, you know, so 
that was hard for me at the, at the, at that moment in time, all I, all I thought about was that she'll never be able to speak. And, and, um, to hear that was, was very difficult. Uh, and then, and then of course I thought about that word progressive again. And, and I asked, is this something that's going to take her life? And, um, is, is very hard, um, to think that, you know, your child won't, may not outlive you. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, uh, oh, sorry. No, I was gonna say. So it sounds like the word progressive was meaningful to you. Like, I mean, sometimes that you know that word isn't meaningful <laughs> to people when they, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Right. And I and I can add to that because you know it's interesting when you look at uh, Jeanette and I's uh, education and and different things. You know, I'm. I'm an engineer, so therefore I, my studies were around physics and, and, you know, calculus and things like that. Jeanette's, uh, you know, uh, worked at zoos and she has a zoo animal uh, degree and her, you know, she understands biology from her schooling and everything. So a lot of the terms, it, it was different than what we processed them. You know, she heard things like progressive and all the, uh, the genetic stuff and the chromosome things. And, you know, she was in sync, you know, she understood what those things, I was still in the room trying to figure out what some of these words even meant <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because I'll be honest, leading up to it. Um, I wasn't concerned. Uh, it, you know, Jeanette was definitely concerned since she was about nine months old. Uh, you know, one, when you have, when it's your second child, you kind of already know certain milestones that they should be uh, meeting. And also Jeanette's as a mother, uh, very well in sync with, with the kids um, that, you know, mother intuition, uh, kept telling her something uh, along with other professionals and things kind of telling her, Hey, there should be this, there should be that. Uh, she's not doing this, but I was, I guess, naively positive, you know, I just mm-hmm. telling myself, uh, Hey, you know, some kids are slower than others and she'll catch up, you know? Oh, she can't, she doesn't walk yet. Oh, she'll catch up. Uh, she doesn't speak yet. Hey, I know people that didn't speak till they were five years old, you know? Um, and I was very positive even leading up to that and like I said even when I said we were preparing for maybe even having an autism diagnosis uh to then I I have family members that have autism and I'm like well I, I see how they've lived right it's not the end of the world uh and all this but when they hit that us with Rett syndrome they talk about progressive Jeanette asked, well, you know, will she speak again? Um, I do remember what they said, you know, uh, a geneticist is not likely. Um, and then will she out, you know, her prognosis as far as death and things. That's when the genetic counselor kind of started chiming in. Um, and she kind of went and she had already done her research as far as looking up for other people, uh, looking, uh, looking at uh, other organizations, you know, organizations around the country that would give us better resources. And some of the things she said is like, hey, no, look, there's there's women that are in their 60s that have Rett syndrome. There's we know some in the state of Alabama that are in their 40s. And I remember Whitley kind of just starting to tell us all that uh, to reassure us that things are going to be okay, even though they were not, you know, uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, try to ensure us that this is not the end of the world. Um, Now, the room was very quiet from them, from both the geneticist and the genetic counselor. 
um, which, you know, looking back at it now, I think that was good. They were letting us process it. I'll, I'll be honest. I was surprised how long they stayed there with us. Um, I don't know how they schedule these things, uh, but uh, Jeanette, what do you think? We were there like two hours. Uh, most of that. It, was it felt like it, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you how long we were there, honestly. Yeah. Um, and I they, didn't know that I, I didn't feel rushed. I didn't, right. I, I just, I felt a lot of care from, from this team for sure. Yeah. They let us ask all the questions. Um, you know, there wasn't your, you know, your typical doctor visit where they're like trying to rush you out because they have another client or a patient or whatever. Um, they stayed there. Um, there wasn't even fidgeting. There wasn't any body signs that they were like trying to hurry us along or anything. Uh, so I'm, I'm very appreciative of that, um, that they let us process it. Uh, because, you know, when Jeanette asked some of her first couple questions, she started crying immediately. I was still kind of sitting there like trying to understand what this all meant, mm-hmm. asking questions. Um, the more questions she asked and the more answers we got, you know, started slowly hitting me. Um, and, you know, it's a joke Jeanette doesn't like me to say, but <laughs> when they said it was, a, it was a mutation, you know, I'm a superhero guy. And I was like, so does that mean she's a mutant like an X-Men? And no one laughed. And How? <laughs> I, I, I was like, hey, I thought it was a pretty good joke, but uh, there's no one laughing. Um, this must be serious. Like, yeah. a, a smirk, a smile in the room, nothing. And at that point is like when I started really like paying attention and, and heightened, like, you know, fight or flight, almost instinct started coming in, like what's going on. Um, and I forget when along the process, but just as Jeanette's crying started calming down, um, I just, I, I exploded, I burst, you know, it was this kind of feeling of like a dam breaking and mm-hmm. I still remember, I, I probably, did a yelp or scream just Whoa! and I just started crying and yeah. like, sobbing tremendously because I I was trying to hold you know even as it was leading up to that I was trying to hold it back and trying to hold it back because I see my wife crying so intensely that I'm like I gotta be here for her and maybe it was just as she started calming down I I I I felt free to cry myself and then like I said the room they get they were supportive um, they stayed there with us. Um, I walked out at one point, um, crying loudly throughout the hallway because I just went to the bathroom because I just had to clean my face and um, mm-hmm. to blow my nose. It just fluids coming out of everywhere in my, on my face. Um, so it was it was very intense for sure. Um, but like I said, they let us do that. They let us ask questions. They let us calm down. Um, I mean, there was some even paperwork we had to fill out towards the end, but they made sure they, they waited, you know, they waited till everything was calm for them to say, oh, and there's this paperwork. I don't even, uh-huh. even think that when Jeanette gave birth at the hospital, they were that patient. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was all good from that team. That's so nice to hear that you had a good experience with, with, I mean, I mean, what can, like you said, it's never going to be positive experience to hear really hard news um but that that you felt like it was handled really well yeah and the one thing that i appreciate even the most about the genetic counseling team at hudson alpha is that even till today uh they've made themselves available um you know we've we have whitley's uh email we have their you know phone numbers we can call ask questions uh kind of bounce things off of them 
Um, and they make time, you know, they make time in their schedules to meet with us, to sit down with us, have lunch over there uh, with us um, uh, as, as we want to either look at what's going on recently or you see something in the news and you just kind of want to bounce it off of someone um, as, as a professional, but as a friend too, uh, to, to get, you know, a feedback on it. Um, and it's been good, uh, to do that. I, till today we're involved with, with that Institute through, uh, they have a yearly 5k race, um, for raising funds for, uh, genetic, genetic, uh, testing, uh, specifically, uh, pediatrics. Um, and it's just been a great team and I'm glad we're actually, uh, in town, you know, I, I drive by it every day to work and it's good to know that that's uh, here in town uh, doing great things like that. Were either of your daughters there with you at the appointment when you received results or was it just the two of you? It, no. it was just us two. Yeah, it was just us two. And, you know, it's interesting a little bit more to that story is that, um, well, when it was all things like that, we tried to not have them there. I, I don't even know, did, Jenna, did they tell us not to bring the kids? I think there were some appointments they said, hey, just adults or something. Uh, no, I don't remember, but that's definitely not a, not something I would have brought the kids to because, uh, <laughs> you know, I knew we were we were going to have to understand what we were hearing and we needed to be focused. Yeah. <laughs> and the, um, the interesting part about that, so leading up to the diagnosis, uh, we were planning just a personal move to... Florida to Orlando. It's where we're from. Um, we had been living in Huntsville for eight years and we thought we wanted to go back home. Um, so the day before the diagnosis, uh, we had just packed up a whole U-Haul truck worth of all our stuff. We had sold the house uh, and we were staying at the neighbor's house, um, you know, and, and literally we were just there a couple more days because we knew we had this appointment coming up. And we're like, um, I think even at one point, Jen, it's like, can't they just tell us over the phone or something? you know, uh, we got to go. <laughs> and I, you know, I think, Oh, we, we want you to come in. I'm glad they did. And I'm glad we waited. Uh, but, uh, that was also intense because we came back from that appointment and we were, it was so many things going on in, in life. You know, we were about to move, which anybody that's moved knows that's, that comes with its stresses and it's, and it's things. Um, and that changed everything because I remember at the time I looked at, uh, Jeanette and I said, uh, Hey, we don't have to go, you know, uh, especially because at the moment when they told us that diagnosis, one, we knew the great team at Hudson Alpha. Two, they had told us that there's a Rett syndrome clinic in Birmingham, which is only an hour and a half away from us at the time in Huntsville. And here we are uprooting ourselves to Orlando, Florida, where in Florida, there's not a Rett syndrome clinic. And yeah, they have some good, uh, you know, specialists and doctors at, uh, at a children's hospital down there, but it wasn't, you know, Rett syndrome specific. So um, and then Jeanette said, you know, right now I need to be next to my mom um, to grieve. And so we went and we left. Um, a couple of years later, we came back uh, due to work and, and we like living over here in North Alabama. Uh, but it was a good time to, I guess, be with family and grieve. I would, yeah, I would imagine that there's very few Rett syndrome clinics in the U.S. Yeah, correct. <laughs> yeah, they keep expanding. Because, you know, when we went down, there was the one in Birmingham, um, doctor there, Dr. Percy, that's been, I understand, like about 30 years, uh, you know, working with, with children with Rett syndrome. Um, and, you know, he's closer to his retirement, uh, but he loves what he does and he understands it very well. And, you know, now I understand there's a team being trained up in Atlanta, a 
There's also a Rett syndrome clinic up in Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee, which we go to a lot because that's about the same distance for us too. Um, mm-hmm. Otto, Boston, Boston, and they keep kind of spreading. Um, I think thanks to uh, some efforts through RettSyndrome.org, which is an organization, and Rett Syndrome Research Trust as well, uh, two organizations that look into the uh, research and care for people with Rett Syndrome. We'll be back with patient stories in just a minute. If you would like to speak with a genetic counselor but don't know where to start, Great Genetics is here to help. We know that finding a genetic counselor can be challenging. Here at Gray Genetics, we offer genetic counseling in a variety of specialty areas. Whether you're interested in cancer, family planning, or cardiovascular genetics, you can connect with a certified genetic counselor who will evaluate your family history and even coordinate testing if necessary, all over the phone or secure video conferencing. Check out this service and more on graygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com. Victor, you mentioned developmental delays uh, and that Jeanette especially had noticed that Tiana wasn't meeting her milestones in the same way that your oldest daughter had. Um, Can you talk a little bit more specifically about what your experience was like with her as a young baby and what you noticed? Sure. Yeah. So she she started out as uh, a a very chill baby, honestly. Um, things were going really well until all of a sudden they weren't. Uh, still in the infancy stages, she could barely sleep. Uh, there was about nothing that I could do to soothe her to sleep. Um, and we did. And we dealt. We dealt with sleepless nights uh, more than any parent probably could ever imagine. Uh, from trying to nurse her and sleep with her for hours. Uh, Nothing soothed her. Absolutely nothing. Um, We went through that phase for many months um, and then that went away, thank goodness. And we got a little break and we started to see some good things. We did start to see some milestones being hit. Now all her milestones were hit pretty late, but uh, regardless, she she was hitting them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she, you know, learned to sit up and crawl and roll over and uh, she was using her hands and was able to, uh, you know, she had a pincer grasp to, to feed herself, you know, um, finger foods and things like that. So it was, it was always great to see those things. And I think that's why, you know, Victor, I agree with Victor in that, in a sense, we were pretty in denial because she always hit her milestones. They were just late. Uh, she had a few words here and there and, uh, you know, I signed up for ba- babycenter.com and got the, the weekly emails letting me know what my child should or sh- should be doing at that point. Uh, and I noticed that she wasn't hitting them at, at all uh, whenever I received those emails. Uh, but she did hit, hit them to a certain extent. Uh, but speech was the first thing that really started to concern me because she would say a word and I'd write it down in her little milestone notebook like, uh, one day she pointed to a pig in a book and she she pointed perfectly normal and said oink and was really giggly. She loves pigs or at least did then. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she said oink and, you know, we celebrated and wrote that in the book. And she had other words like bye. And um, we spoke to her in Spanish at the time. So she would say Ma- mama and we were trying to teach her mommy and papi, but she mm-hmm. would say mama and papa. Uh, and she was able to wave by, 
and, you know, just very simple things. And those just started disappearing. They never like accumulated. She would say a word and it would last a week and go away, say a new word last a week and go away. And um, so we definitely got her into early intervention program here in town uh, to give kids therapy. She got speech, physical and occupational therapy uh, when she was started about at about 14 months. Um, and we saw everyone weekly, sometimes multiple times a week. Uh, she was not uh, walking. That was the longest and hardest one was to get her to walk. Um, and so we had that period where we were progressing until she wasn't. And that was around two years old. Um, other than the, the, the walking was about the only thing that progressed, but she lost all of her words. And I noticed when we were in, um, uh, I think it was OT, we were playing with the shape sorters and she was able to do a shape sorter and put the circle in the circle hole, the triangle in the triangle spot. Um, and just this day she couldn't do it. And she kept looking like she needed help. And for the next couple of weeks, it seemed like it got more and more difficult for her. And um, they definitely mentioned that that wasn't, that wasn't normal and that she should have been progressing with as much therapy as she was getting. Um, but I, I stored it in my mind, but kind of pushed it aside. And it wasn't until she was, she started walking uh, about two months after her second birthday. And we worked I, told, I think we were seeing physical therapy twice a week and we worked so hard to get her to climb the little tyke slide and be able to climb up it by herself and slide down or climb up on the couch and slide down uh, the slide. Um, and we were able to do that. We got it to a point where she, I could just say, come on, Tiana, let's go. We're going to get in the car. And she'd actually walk outside to uh, the door of the truck and climb in and get in her car seat. And uh, one day we were actually waiting for physical therapy to get to our house. And so I had the door open to the car so she could play and I had her slide outside and we we're just waiting. And um, I told her, let's get in the car. And she just stood out there and wouldn't go up. And at that part, I was at that point, I was a little bit hard on her. And I'm like, come on, we've been working really hard. You've got this and you don't need mommy's help anymore. You, you know, get up there. Mm -hmm. You can do it. And it really broke my heart and she didn't cry and she didn't fuss. She just stared at me like, mom, I just can't do it. And I need your help. Yeah. And, um, that, that, that was the hard part for me and her therapist, the physical therapist, when she got there said, you know, Jeanette, we've worked very hard and it isn't normal, um, for someone who's worked this hard to regress. And that's, that's what she was agreeing that she was seeing as well as, um, regression in everything that she had gained. Um, and, uh, matter of fact, that ther that physical therapist, she said to me, she said, I'm not a doctor and I'm not allowed to diagnose, but I want you to look into Rett syndrome or Angelman syndrome and just see what you think. And of course I go and I Google it and it's the most horrible, horrifying thing I've ever seen. And I thought immediately, no, my daughter doesn't have that. And I just didn't see the comparison at the time at all. Um, and that's probably because what you see on in Google is, is the worst of the worst. And Absolutely. Um, yeah. she was nowhere near that. And she still isn't anywhere near that yet. So I didn't connect with it. I didn't think that's what it was. And I never told my husband about it and we just moved on. And, um, and I will say it, 
at the time of diagnosis, when he said Rett syndrome, I said, I, I, that was actually the first words out of my mouth was, uh, she was right. And I had to explain them and to my husband that my, the physical therapist had mentioned it. And, and I just, you know, and, and I don't know if that would have mattered. Honestly, we were doing everything we possibly could and we were treating her just like we would have treated any other child. And I felt like we pushed her and did all that we could do for her. And we continue to do for her. Um, so, you know, how, no, I, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. How old was she when the physical therapist suggested maybe it was Rett syndrome? She was around 26 or 27 months. So just, it's just, just shortly after she started walking, it's like she finally got the ability to walk and, and things started showing up. She also started showing um, stereotypical hand movements at that time as well, which looked at the time similar to autistic hand flapping. Um, now she does something completely different. Um, so, but yeah, I would say that was about two or three months after her second birthday when when um, she mentioned that. Yeah. But when you actually got the diagnosis, it was really just a few months later, right? Correct. I mean, I guess when you're living it, few months is very, very long. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it yes, it is. Maybe, maybe six months at the most. Uh-huh. Uh, we, I mean, it, once we realized that, we, like I said, it was like everything just started spiraling downhill. She was losing um, her ability to like she would always grab her pacifier and put it in her mouth, but it was like, it was like dropping it, trying to get it to her mouth or holding her blankie. She loved this little silk blankie that she, you know, when she had difficult times and she, we just couldn't soothe her. She'd grab her pasty and her silk blanket. And, um, right. those or things were first, becoming like, more difficult. Like her, when she was around one, one and a half years old, she'd, she'd crawl into my closet and pull my hats out and put them on and come out with yeah. my hat. She um, loved and, putting baseball caps on. <laughs> right. And when she, you know, it's like when she started walking, um, you know, we're like her hands freed up, right? So because she, she wasn't crawling and things as much anymore. And that's uh-huh. when the hand movement thing started going. She would just kind of, she'd walk and just flap her hands, uh, you know, back and forth. Um, you know, Rett syndrome has a kind of stereotypical uh, hand wringing uh, motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, she doesn't do, and she hadn't done. Um, and, I think that's part of also why maybe, uh, you know, it was, it was two and a half when we got the diagnosis um, and all that. But, you know, I, we know of other people, other families that may have gotten a little earlier and things are improving and things. But a lot of it is because some others were, you know, you show certain stereotypical movements, hand movements of a big giveaway, um, other things. And then uh, neurologists and, and doctors are able to say, hey, we think it's this. So therefore, let's do this test that's that tests for just, you know, a couple things and it's all a much faster test. Right. Um, right. We went down the whole genome uh, path because she wasn't really showing typical Rett syndrome signs at the time. Mm-hmm. Right. She, she actually didn't have the typical hand wringing or, or even many, she didn't have her stereotypical hand movements weren't very strong at that point. Um, and she was also breathing normal. So she didn't have the, the, the difficulty breathing that she does now. Um, and it was actually post-diagnosis about, oh, I don't know, four months, five months after diagnosis where she actually got sick with an upper respiratory infection. 
and one one doctor said it was pneumonia. The the emergency room said it was not. Uh, whatever the case was, um, it spiraled her her um, regressions. She no longer could fighting off that that infection. Actually, just I think sped up all of it because then she lost her ability to use her hands. Pretty much, she couldn't she couldn't feed herself. She couldn't hold her bottle to drink. Uh, she loved to read books and she couldn't pick the books up anymore. And I, one day I sat her in front of her books and I went to cook in the kitchen and usually she'll come out of the room when she's done, but she never came out. And I noticed that she was trying to crawl out of her room and she just, she just couldn't, um, couldn't stand up on her own anymore. She had episodes where she'd be standing there and just start screaming and she was shaking and trembling really bad. And if I didn't get near her fast enough, she would actually just fall over, um, and that lasted several months until, until everything just, just settled down. It was a very difficult, very hard time. And I believe that most folks with Rett syndrome experience this regression within two and a half to three and a half years old. And, and she definitely was going through it. And it was very, it was very difficult. Uh, it was a very difficult phase to watch. And about the only time that I would say that my daughter was ever a diff was was difficult and, and cried or upset or uncomfortable. Um, it was, it was hard to watch. Yeah. Know. How did you cope with that? Um, <laughs> there was a lot of crying. Yeah. It was very hard. You know, when you're, when you're a mom and to see your child standing there and shaking so bad and, um, you know, in the moment you're strong and you help her through it and you get through it and, and, you know, you don't want to be emotional in the moment because, you know, you need to be there for her. And, um, and I was, and, and we are always there for her. Um, I'll be honest though, when she's feeling good, she's feeling amazing and her smile and especially today and now that she's not in any regression phase, like we get through it because we see that she just wakes up every day with a smile on her face and she's ready to go. She's mm-hmm. like my husband said, she gets around her peers who are doing everything that she cannot do. She needs her help. She needs help to do everything, to drink, to eat, to stand up, to sit down, to pick up something. I mean, she can't do anything herself. Um, and she doesn't complain. She doesn't complain. She doesn't go to a playground and watch kids playing and, and create a fuss at all. She watches and she laughs and she enjoys whenever someone interacts with her. And to me, <laughs> you know, I could be a big crybaby and I look at that and think she could care less. She is so strong and so happy with who she is and where she's at. And she's going to make the best of every moment. And that reminds me every single day that I need to do the same thing. Yeah. And in regards to coping with all this and, um, and trying to process it, especially that first year, uh, you know, I, as I mentioned, we had just moved to uh, Florida from Alabama at the time. Uh, so there were the stresses coming through that uh, and then trying to readjust life with all of this and what it would mean for her future, for our future. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of crying, like Jeanette said, but there's also anger. Um, as well, you know, the grief, grief is, is a crazy thing. Um, you know, they talk about the stages of grief, but I think you jump around them all 
all over the place. Uh, you never know which one you're going to be on. Um, and I remember when Janelle was talking about when she started losing abilities, Tiana. And there was one time we were at a rental house once we moved down there and she started shaking and she couldn't hold herself up. So, and then I grabbed her and we made sure she was okay. And once she was stabilized, uh, I remember Jeanette just went into the room, into our room, slammed the door and, and I could hear her just punching pillows and screaming into it, um, which that's not typical of Jeanette's, you know, uh, personality or character. Usually I'm the aggressive one and when I'm mad, um, so it was it was hard. I knew Jeanette was really struggling. We both were, uh, but I had never seen her that way. You know, I had never seen my wife so angry. Um, and she was very good at doing that in private away from the kids. Uh, but sometimes you have to just let it go. I mean, you're, you're so angry at so many things, at, at angry at expectations, angry at the world, um, you know, angry at God at, at times. You know, why? Why me? Why this? Did I do something wrong? You know, you start trying to blame it on you, blame it on others. Um, and then, you, you know, it affects relationships you have with other people, uh, with family members. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, some of the people that you think are going to be the ones that are going to be there with you are not. They fail you. You know, they, they push away. And then there's, there's other ones that you never expected anything out of. And they're the ones that are there with you every step of the way. And you wonder, where did you come from? <laughs> uh, but you're thankful they're there. Um, so it, it's a big, just emotional roller coaster that your life literally does get flipped upside down and or you get knocked down. I, I really felt like I got knocked down and I just couldn't get up uh, for about a year, year and a half. Um, and, and each of us have to cope with it individually, even I think before we can cope with it as a couple as well. Uh, so I, I, you know, we would talk along, uh, the way, but we also gave each other time. Um, for me, I, I travel a lot with work and at the time, somehow my, my travel just skyrocketed even more because of the move to Orlando. I was traveling about three times a month, right? Three, three weeks out of the month, every Monday I was on an airplane. Uh, maybe that was for a reason, you know, maybe that's for me to be able to cope. I mean, I coped a lot in, in, uh, in hotel rooms, uh, because when I was home, I felt like I needed to be strong for my family, um, be able to be there for, for my wife, uh, for the kids, to be able to give her a break to cope. And then, when, and then I'd leave and I would fall apart in hotel rooms. You know, I, not ashamed to say I'd, I'd heavily drink and pass out in a hotel room, uh, crying on the floor. And you know, that, that went on for a year, year and a half, maybe. Um, and you know, some, some relationships got, with family got got tough um and then had to rehabilitate those afterwards uh, because you're just so angry at the world everything you just want to destroy everything around you at least for me because of everything you're going through um but you have to be strong people around you have to understand uh you know one thing you hear a lot from people are oh a special needs child it's a blessing it's a blessing and i just wanted to punch them in the face every time they said that at the time um i see some of what they're trying to say there uh but it you know at the time i just i didn't want to hear it you know and you have to let people cope uh sometimes all you can do is just be there don't say anything just be there um uh, for them uh, you know a special needs parent uh is strong i i don't think i've i've i have met a weak <laughs> special needs parent uh, 
and they'll act like every, everything's under control, but sometimes they're falling apart emotionally inside. And maybe that's a coping mechanism for us because we have to be strong in front of our kids. We don't want to let them know that, you know, we're not there for them. Um, so I would say that, you know, if, if you have a special needs family in your life, just be with them. You know, don't even ask. I, I just go out and say it. Just don't even ask. Just be there. Uh, because we're probably not going to say, yeah, we need help. Um, because life has toughened us up so much that we don't think we need help. You know, when things go bad for other people, we some of those things happen every day to us and we don't even think about it. So just be there, you know. Uh, come over, ring the doorbell uh, un, unannounced uh, and say, hey, I brought you something or I brought you food or I'm, I'm going to help you do this or let me take your your other child, right, uh, your other daughter. Um, and those are the kind of help that has helped us get along as people that, you know, they get to know us a little bit and, and then they realize that just do. You know, don't ask, just do, uh, because sometimes you just never know. Uh, that may be a day that your child's not walking anymore and you suck, suck it all in um, and you try to be tough. And in reality, you just you just need some extra hand, maybe. But we won't say anything for whatever reason. <laughs> Before being parents with Tiana, did either of you have any experience with families who had kids with special needs or had you worked at all with children with developmental delays or disabilities, or was this entirely new to you? Oh my goodness. Uh, it was definitely entirely new to a sense. Um, I can't think of anyone that I knew growing up or had been around, but uh, I will say that my mother was an, uh, a teacher's aide in a special needs classroom for most of my school years, middle school and high school, my mom, it it was, my mom basically worked with special needs kids throughout me being in school. Uh, I always saw it. I would, we even, she taught, she taught at the school that I would go to. And so I'd get to see these kids. And uh, I, to be honest, I was always very uncomfortable. I didn't know how to communicate with them. I didn't know how to act around them. My mom is like a blessing to them and they all love her. And um, you know, I, I know, <laughs> I know, I know now, I know it's now Victor said that people say that special needs kids are a blessing and, and, and it did irritate me in the beginning. And now I completely understand it. 100% understand it. Um, it knocks complete sense and reality into your world. It, it turns your life over in in a good way sometimes because it, it makes you, it makes you, it opens your eyes to the reality, to the reality of life and how not in control you are of it and how so many things are just so unimportant. And, and also it taught me how these people are people just like us and they understand us and they hear us and they want to be treated exactly the same. And I know that I can do that now. And I understand folks who see people with special needs and don't know what to do. And, and I, all I can say is they are just like us. They just can't communicate the same way, but they hear us, they understand us, and they want to be spoken to, and they want to be treated the same as everyone else. Um, and, and that's why I say it's a blessing and, and just the reality of life that um, becomes your new life is, is, is a blessing. Yeah, for, for me, um, it's taught me compassion. Uh, haven't been 
a very compassionate person most of my life. And I mean, there was even a time that I, I looked at people with special needs and thought to myself, you know, why, why are they here? They're useless. Right. And I hesitate to even say that now because it's, that's not how I feel like at all. Uh, but the moment we got the diagnosis with Tiana, the moment I, I kind of processed it, it was like this immediate uh, change of heart for me um, where I have compassion for others, um, especially those um, in need physically, mentally. Uh, and all I want to do is something to just, you know, hug them and, and just be their friend. Um, and that's that for me, I guess, has been that blessing that people have talked about is being able to have a change of heart and be compassionate for other people. That's so nice to hear. <laughs> Do you think at any point did someone tell you, you know, you were saying like, oh, that's such a blessing where it, it, it was actually helpful to hear that. <laughs> or do you think it was like always, always a useless thing to say. And at some point you just experienced that for yourself. Yeah. For me, I think I just, I just experienced it. I don't think I ever heard it and thought, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> yes. Right. For me, it's just, I had to come to that realization on my own um, because for every person it's different for every family, it's different. Um, how you process things. I mean, these are, it all depends on you know, how you grew up and your upbringing and what the future may have for you. But um, for me, it definitely has put life in perspective um, on top of having, you know, compassion for people now. It also uh, put uh, family in perspective. Uh, you know, I put, I used to put work on a pedestal. Work was my number one um, for everything. You know, uh, anything in life or whatever revolved around, you know, the, my achievements at work. Um, and I, the moment we got the diagnosis, uh, the pendulum swung for me all the way to the other side, which is not good either. <laughs> for about the first year or two, you know, I didn't care about work uh, because I, I just swung the other side and I had, I was trying to cope, cope with all this and the meaning of life and understanding of all this. Uh you know, for the first time in my life, here was a problem I couldn't solve. Um, you know, as both an engineer and, you know, in my career, uh, an executive of a defense company, I, I solve problems. That's what I do. You know, that's what I get paid to do. That's what uh, my career has been about. Um, and, you know, uh, here was a problem I could not do anything about. Um, and up until that point, you know, I would say, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian and I pray, but it was always this kind of like, yeah, hey, I'm praying just to let you know what I'm about to do. because I, I got this. I'll take care of this. Um, but just, you know, heads up, God. <laughs> um, and since Tiana's diagnosis, um, I pray because I understand that it's not all in my control. Um, and I've had that was even some coping for me to to surrender myself, to know that it's not all about me and that sometimes I need help. And sometimes I need help from uh, up above um, because there are things in life that I can't solve and that's okay. You, you know, a lot of people, there's another saying, a lot of people say, and it's that um, God doesn't give you what you can't handle. Mm-hmm. And um, the only thing I can say to that, and I know, I know other special needs families who get really upset when they hear that. Um, but the, the, the truth of that is, is that, 
it's not that God doesn't, we can't handle it. (laughs) Not any parent can handle the difficulties of whatever struggles your child is going through, whether it's Rett syndrome or whether it's uh, something we might consider minuscule. Um, You know, as a parent, you want your child to be perfect in every way and not suffer anything. And, and it's not something that we can handle, but the fact that we have faith that God will guide us through it is definitely, definitely what keeps us, what keeps us going along with her positivity (laughs) for sure. How do you feel that Tiana's diagnosis has affected her older sister, Aaliyah? And I know before the interview, you mentioned that a lot of people ask you how, um, how this diagnosis has affected your plans to have more children. Yeah. So, um, oh man, how has it affected her sister, her older sister, Aaliyah? You know, at first she was so excited to have us have a little sister and um, everything was great. She, she loved to be around her and, and hold her and help, help mommy feed her and, and things like that. She was young herself, but super excited. Um, but the comments started coming in from her sister when Tiana wasn't interacting with her at the time where she could crawl and play with toys. Um, she just, she couldn't play the same way. And her sister would always ask, well, is she going to play with me yet? Um, I'm not sure what was going on at Tiana at the time that she was, she was very solitary. She would play by herself. She didn't really interact with her sister very much. Um, I'm so thankful that has changed and and she does love the attention. She's very social. Um, but over the years now, her sister goes through, goes through phases, phases where she's super helpful and, and really sweet and comforting to, to Tiana and, hugging her and she's actually learned how to feed her through a g-tube which was nothing we even asked of her she just figured it out and we found out one day that she had done it for us and um you know it's it's going to be a blessing in her life as well but um you know there's times where she's still she's still coping and trying to understand she still asked me last year um she said when tiana was turning actually when Tiana was turning six years old. Aaliyah said, um, mommy, so when Tiana turns six, will she talk like me? Cause she thinks that, you know, when she hits just another year older, she'll be able to speak. And so those are just little signs that kind of remind us that she's, she has needs that she's not being filled by, you know, through her little sister. And, um, and so she goes through phases where she's, you know, very interactive with her and then phases where she acts like her sister doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Um, And those are very difficult moments for me. Um, But I'm grateful that she gets through them. Um, You know, I always think that maybe there's counseling that needs to get involved. Um, I'm not sure yet. You know, we'll keep an eye out. But, you know, we, we keep everything open. We keep the conversation open with her and try to explain to her, you know, what is Rett syndrome, how it's affecting her sister. Um, well, like I said, we're we're in a good phase right now. We're in the, I you know, I'm I'm here for Tiana and I'm going to share my things with her. And I'm, I'm hoping that's normal <laughs> childhood development. But, I you know, you can see with the with the, with the questions, um, it's it's difficult you know, she, we've, she's got friends that are the same age as her sister and, and they play so well together. 
And I can only imagine she wonders, you know, why I can't play like this with my sister. Yeah. Um, with any, with any of the families you've met, has she been able to connect with um, like typical um, siblings of other, you, you know, who also have that similar experience of having siblings with special needs? Yes, we actually had a family. We were out camping as a family at the new uh, baseball stadium last night. And while we were camping, Aaliyah got a a video message from a typical sibling of a girl with Rett syndrome. They're, they're sweet family friends of ours, um, the Goodman family. And they're from Nashville, Tennessee, or somewhere around that area. Um, but she, so this sibling is the same age as, uh, Tiana. Um, and she was the one that sent Aaliyah the video saying, you know, just saying hi and wish she could come play and remember, you know, and they, she's talking about her toys that Aaliyah and her have played with together. And now that girl's sister is older than her is the same age as Aaliyah and she has Rett syndrome. Mm. Um, and so that's huge and so comforting to me that they have each other, um, to communicate with and, and, you know, as hopefully as they get older and and they have, you know, more questions that are maybe difficult to talk to mom and dad about, maybe they can talk to each other about, um, cause they're both, they're both in the same boat. So, yeah. And one thing, um, we also see that Aaliyah, I mean, she's learning, who knows what's going to become of this for her we haven't forced you know her to help on this stuff i i guess oh you know we make her clean her room and pick up stuff and all that things you know uh, but as far as having uh her having to like force her to help things with tiana uh we've just shown it to her through example um and that's and she's picked it up you know she sees that we care for her sister she sees that her sister needs extra help um and she just helps you know she does it um we see that especially there's a locally here, there's another family, um, the fosters here in town that have twins with Rett syndrome. And whenever Aaliyah goes to their house, uh, Aaliyah immediately helps those two girls out. You know, she's just uh, very attentive to them, um, make sure that they need, you know, they have what they need, that they don't fall. I mean, uh, Aaliyah even gets on me because uh, even in my own house, you know, I, I just, when I get, to doing something i'm just like focused and like i don't see tiana sometimes and Aliyah goes is like what are you doing dad you're gonna knock her over <laughs> or things like that she's very attentive to her um from that perspective yeah making sure the dog doesn't bump her down or yeah. some other kid run into her and bump her down she obviously knocks falls over easily so her sister's that's like normal life for her sister is making sure her sister doesn't get knocked down yeah yeah did you, and you said um, people ask you about having other children or um, I don't know if that comes from them thinking that there's like a high risk of this happening again, or just, you know, having a lot on your plate already, but has it impacted your, how you think about possibly expanding your family or were you always thinking two kids? Uh, no, we, ha it, it absolutely has a f impacted our decision decision on growing our family. Uh, I hate that that's what it did to us. Um, especially, uh, yeah, we both wanted a big family. If, four, if Victor wanted like six kids, <laughs> I was, I was more like three, maybe four tops. Um, but you know, Tiana came with so many difficulties in the beginning and she's an absolute blessing. I know that now I love her to pieces and she is who she is. And, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I know that I could be a mother to any child that, that God, you know, gives me, but it, it did, it did affect us. It, it did. It, it honestly, it did. And we, that, that answer has changed for me this year. <laughs> um, I wish I would have thought about it more, um, earlier cause I'm not getting any younger. Um, I, I would like to see them have a sibling. Um, I know that it's okay. I know that it's the, the, I think the, the chances of having another child with Rett syndrome is less than 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's not a concern. I, I we just, I, I don't know why it took us so long. I, Victor, I think you're in the same boat, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, I guess it just, there was so much to think about, um, that we kept thinking and then we had two moves during the last, you know, four years during, you know, after diagnosis and everything. Um, and you know, one thing led to another. Now we're at a point where we're like, hey, we feel a little bit more settled now. And so now we're having the conversation as we speak. We're still at, we're, I want to say we're like yay or nay on it. Uh, we're just been thinking through it. Now, uh, we know families that have gone and, and they've had a, a third, fourth child, you know, afterwards. Uh, and, and they're happy for it. You know, one family we know, uh, several kids, uh, the way they, they kind of put it, they're like, you know, when, when you have more, um, kids, the Rett syndrome doesn't become your whole life because there's other mouths to keep alive. There's other kids to keep alive. <laughs> um, and you just happen to have one that's a little different and you have to care for them differently. Uh, but uh, actually having more kids um, allows you to not have your life revolve around Rett syndrome. And mm-hmm. it's been very comforting from other families that have done that um, and have told us and we see them live that way. Um, and also that we see that all the siblings are, are better for it. You know, they're better people. They're compassionate people. Um, they, they care for others because they have a sibling that has special needs. What would you say to someone who is listening to this and is maybe kind of in a similar space to where you were years ago, where you're just um, noticing developmental delays, you're coping with a new diagnosis and everything just still feels really raw and new. What would you want them to know? Is there anything that you think might be, be helpful for them or that you wish you'd known, um, earlier? Um, uh, I'll start with this and then Victor can add anything, but, uh, um, you know, I think that we focus so hard on, well, what is the problem? What is the problem? But I, I say, you know, take it a day at a time do the best that you can do, get therapy. Don't be afraid to get therapies, to get help, to get uh, evaluations done, to, you know, seek what your, your community has to offer. If your child is going through any developmental delays, there's usually a program where they can help evaluate and start, you know, some therapies and just start guiding you in the right direction. I was given that information from my sister-in-law, who's a speech pathologist, uh, and some other people here in town. And I jumped on that the minute I was, I was having concerns and, you know, it doesn't give you an answer, but it helps you and gets you going in the right direction. And and it ultimately is what's going to, you know, what's going to get you where you need to be and not, not worry so much about whether you're doing the right thing as, as a parent, you are, you're doing the best that you're going to do. Uh, don't compare yourself to anyone else. Um, and, and definitely take it one day at a time. And if you're, if you are at the point where you're, you've received a diagnosis and you feel like life is over and you're, 
you can't see the future, just know that that is going to go away too. You're going to find a new meaning of life. You're going to find everything. There's just going to be a new normal and things will be okay. You'll be able to enjoy your time as a family. You'll be able to get out and we do everything we possibly can. Um, just as normal as, as our normal is. Our normal's different. Everybody's normal's different. And um, you will get to your new normal and it will be okay. I mean, I'd say uh, the one thing that, that helps when you're going through a diagnosis is connecting with people that have been there, you know, been there, done that. And I would even say connect with people that have been there for a lot longer than you. Um, yes, it's, it's good to connect with, let's say, the, that couple that may have just had a diagnosis a year or two um, you know, ago because the feelings may be fresh you know, there and you can kind of uh, talk about some of those things. But I'd say connect with that family. Go find them. Seek them. That family that, that has a 40-year-old child or not a child, a 40-year-old adult, a 60-year-old you know, uh, uh, adult daughter or son that has been through this, you know, that, that have spent 30, 40 years of their life um, going through this. Because when you talk to them, for me, speci- uh, especially, it brought peace to my heart to see that life went on, that life wasn't over, that they adjusted. You know, you, you talk to them and they have a peace to them uh, because the years have done a lot of things for them. The years have hardened them. The years have let them cope. Uh, the years have let them figure things out, um, both emotionally and practically, too. There's a lot of practical administrative stuff that goes on with uh, having a special needs child. And those older couples, those older parents can guide you through that um, and be able to have almost like a mentor, a life mentor, life coach there, a friend that has been there and understands. Because I'll, I mean, I'll be honest, uh, I've always been one that, hey, don't come talk to me. Don't try to give me counseling and advice if you haven't been through what I've been through. I don't care how many degrees you have. If you haven't been through what I've been through, you don't know. And for me, therefore, I find, I try to find people that have been there, done that, that have that life experience, that can tell you truth, that can tell you uh, things in, in raw form and fully connect with the way you're feeling. Um, and if you can't find them, you know, just start asking around. Uh, sometimes get connected with with conferences and things. Uh, you know, I know some people get diagnoses that uh, there's not a syndrome, right? It's this new thing, right? And, and you can't really connect with someone that has the same thing. But try to find something that's close uh, because the emotional piece may still be there. For me, one of my biggest turning points was we had gone to a Rett syndrome conference in Birmingham, probably maybe a year into diagnosis. Um, and it was, it was, it was more for the parents. It was, a uh, everybody came with their kids and everything. And, uh, there I saw the girls and women with Rett syndrome, uh, of all ages. And I remember I, uh, at lunchtime, I lost my appetite at first because I hadn't, I hadn't been exposed to that. I mean, it was like this constant, it was this immense exposure, right? I hadn't even met one or two, but now here's an entire cafeteria full of people in all different forms of, of uh, physical and mental needs. Um, 
and I I lost my appetite. And I'm one that loves to eat. I never lose my appetite. <laughs> uh, but there, I, I couldn't eat. It was still, I was still coping. But instead of staying in my corner, I started talking to the parents, the people. I started talking, uh, understanding how what they went through, understanding how life is for them now. Uh, we met a lady there that has had a has a uh, daughter that's 45, right? And she was able to just, you know, speak peace into my heart, if anything. Um, later on, we got to meet her daughter um, and see, you know, what, uh, how she's being taken care of with AIDS and, and things like that. And, and the parent's life is not over and life goes on. Yeah, absolutely. If I could just say, add to that is that is definitely a life changer for me. Um, and one great thing about our, our genetics team here is they connected us. They may not have known everything about rest syndrome, but they connected us with whoever they could. And we immediately reached out and within, uh, I, how long was it before we got contacted Victor by the first family with rest syndrome? Uh-huh. A couple Not of weeks? even no, it was a couple of days. Uh, it was two days later because was it yeah, two days later? Yeah. We yeah, it was a Thursday um, when we got the diagnosis. Um, that Thursday night, just in Huntsville, the same time we were at, there was a Rett syndrome benefit dinner going on, <laughs> uh, which we found out about the day later because you know obviously what do you think we did all night and all morning? Google Rett syndrome. <laughs> Um, and found, you know, this thing. So I, through Facebook, contacted a family that was just up in Tennessee. And on our drive down, as we were driving down to Orlando to move, you know, they gave us a call and we just had that initial connection. Um, then a couple of days later, uh, yeah, we got contacted by by another family through RettSyndrome.org. We, you know, we went in and signed up for, you know, uh, the membership. If you're a family, sign up here. And, you know, they immediately got us in contact with someone down in the Florida area that then connected us to other people. Um, so, you know, it spread. The, the great thing about technology nowadays and, you know, uh, even social media stuff is we've been able to connect with people from around the world. Um, and that's, that's good because what I would say is this journey feels lonely at times. And when you have a genetic disorder condition that may be rare when you look at numbers, you know, and you look around your own neighborhood and usually you don't find a lot of people, right? So you feel alone and you feel like no one understands you. You feel like you're going through this all by yourself and that can lead into a lot of the depressive thoughts. Um, but with technology, we've been able to connect from people with everywhere, right? Um, we've I traveled to England one time for work and Jeanette came with me and she went and visited a family with Rett syndrome over there because we met them through, you know, Facebook and a, and a Rett syndrome race that was going on down in Orlando as well. And they happened to be there. Um, you know, we, we know people in Australia, we know people all, you know, almost every state um, that, and we, we visited some, you know, we like road trips and things and we try to connect with those people to see how, how life is for them. And, and there's a connection there because you know what they're going through, you know what you're going through. Um, and that's how we build our community is to, through social media. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. 
If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.